Is your business a complex adaptive system? Yes, it is. How do you manage that? With simple rules. This is the Economics for Business podcast. We are here to help all businesses become champions for customers and value, improving lives with preferred and innovative products and services. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. One of the many reasons that Austrian economics is the best platform for developing effective tools and methods and approaches for business is that it's a special form of systems thinking, specifically systems thinking about value generation. Ludwig von Mises, for example, talks about the market system and he designed system models through verbal logic. He was a systems thinker. Systems thinking is a route to understanding how complex systems work and can be made to work better. You have no choice in the matter. Your business is a complex adaptive system connected to and interacting with other complex adaptive systems like customers and markets and supply networks. These systems are constantly in motion, always changing at a rapid rate, and your business needs to do the same. That's what we call adaptiveness, continuous change in response to a market that's continuously changing. Mises described his market system as being in constant flux, requiring adaptation of human action. Complexity of this kind can sound scary, but the revelations of the sciences of complexity are that That is not the appropriate stance. The right approach is to address complexity via simplifying. Specifically, find the simple rules that you and everybody in your system can follow without permission and without needing to take orders from anyone so they know exactly what to do in every situation, no matter how great the variance. More than that, the development and sharing of the right simple rules results in a culture in which the right behavior is automatic and self-organized. And it's all in the pursuit of shared goals, thus enabling shared achievement. The most knowledgeable in this field, who have successfully advised scores of corporations of all sizes, are Laura and Derek Cabrera of Cabrera Research Lab. The lab was born at Cornell University and does basic and applied research, designs business tools and technologies, and facilitates understanding and systems thinking, systems mapping, systems leadership, and systems science. Laura is the chief research officer at the lab, in addition to her teaching role at Cornell in systems thinking and modeling. Derek is the senior scientist at the lab and faculty director for the graduate certification program in systems thinking, modeling, and leadership at Cornell. Both Laura and Derek are internationally known and renowned And you can find them on YouTube and TED Talks and at cabreraresearch.org. Laura and Derek, welcome to the Economics of Business podcast. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. Well, we're delighted that you're here. We fully embrace systems thinking. It's an approach to help businesses of all size, all kinds, to improve their performance. We've delved a little bit into uh, complex adaptive systems, which we may mentioned today, managing action under uncertainty. That's our our favorite word for uh, the unknown, uncertainty. 
your Cabrera Research Lab is an endless supply of frameworks and resources and tools for systems thinking. It's a reservoir of experience since you've helped a lot of companies and executive teams apply your tools. You're continuously learning. Uh, and so we're looking forward to learning from you both today. Let's take a little bit of preparatory background from you about Cabrera Research Lab and your journey and uh, how you got into systems and tools. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I really actually didn't know what systems thinking was. I didn't start off as a cognitive system scientist. Uh, I actually started off as a high-altitude mountain guide and for nearly two decades spent, you know, 200 or so days a year in a tent guiding clients up in the mountains of the world. And I think it was in the mountains that I came to understand systems uh, really for the first time and the importance of systems thinking. Um, you know, to a climber, a summit is just is just a an interdisciplinary problem that has to be solved. And to solve this problem, you have to understand the mountain and the expedition as a complex system of systems. And uh, there are many different types of systems, whether it's your technical gear or your rope systems, the weather is a system, the snowpack is a system, geology, geography, your physiology, you know, all those kinds of things. And, and not only that, but um, a lot of people think it's a physical game, but it's actually very psychological and it's also sociological. Most mountain expeditions fail because uh, not because uh, people can't do the technical parts, but because people don't get along on the mountain. Um, so it really is a complex system of systems. And I think if, uh, if I boiled everything that I learned in the mountains about systems thinking, I'd, I'd boil it down to one lesson, which is you really have to be curious and love reality, uh, really fall in love with reality and want to understand the system and understand why it works the way it works. And, uh, that, that really has guided a lot of my work in systems thinking. Were you on the mountain, Laura? Uh, well, actually, before I turned 50, I did get to climb a mountain with my husband as my guide. So not at the same time as him early on, but he brought me into it later, which was great. And did you enter into systems thinking through, through Derek or through a different pathway? Well, it's interesting. I actually, um, I, I came up through the ranks studying uh, research methods and evaluation and also a thing called translational research, is, which is where you take uh, the best of sort of academic theories and try to translate them into practical tools and ways to bring them into a community to actually guide practice and make change. And long story short, we met Derek and I on a grant, uh, the purpose of which was to translate his theories into practice. And um, he was the one who introduced me to systems thinking as a concept and as a theory. And we sort of, I sort of got it quickly and then the rest is history from there. Well, translational research is what we try to do here, uh, Laura. And a lot of our, our theories are from Austrian economics and we're trying to translate them into business tools and business understanding. So we're in the same game. Yes. Let's define systems thinking for uh, business owners and executives and managers and practitioners, uh, Derek and Laura. How, how should they think about it? They're, they're climbing a metaphorical mountain, but maybe it's a little <laughs> yes. bit different. How, do, how should they think about 
practice uh, systems thinking? Well, I would say systems thinking in sort of its um, most simple definition is really the, the ability to interrogate the mental models you're making by really considering the distinctions you're making, the way you're organizing parts of systems into holes, um, the relationships you're choosing to see or not see, and then looking at things from many different perspectives. So it's really um, systems thinking, in, in our view, is the result of those four things, making distinctions, recognizing relationships, organizing things into systems, and taking perspectives. Yeah, you, you've got a whole uh, set of, of knowledge around that uh, acronym of DRSP, which we can't uh, talk any more about today because we're going to look at another uh, yep. set of your research, but we might come back and talk about it another time, how you actually how you actually do that. On the, on the other side of that, um, Laura, the, you talk about ways not to think. There are, there are detrimental ways to think that are not systems thinking. Can you just point to that a little bit so that people can make the contrast? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that we talk a lot about in systems thinking is moving away from our bias to be linear in our thinking. We talk about looking at webs of causality that most things that exist in the world actually are parts of webs of causality, not a direct linear causal relationship. We think a lot about um, moving away from our anthropocentric lens and, and opening ourselves up to the many different ways and perspectives we can take on things we're thinking about. Um, you know, we try to move away from the, the tendency to be binary in our thinking you know, to move from sort of an either or mindset to more of an and both. We try to look for things that, that exist in a, in a multivalent way rather than, than just bivalent. Um, and I would also say, you know, in particular, in terms of business, we try to move away from the, the sort of mechanistic metaphors that we use a lot when we think about the human brain as a computer and things as it ties into the binary, you know, there's one answer or there's not. So we try to think or we try to teach in the business context for people to be more adaptive and organic in the way that they think about um, their thinking. And let's see, Derek, did I miss anything? No, I think that's, you know, in the, in the organizational context or the business context, it really is about seeing your organization almost yeah. as a living, breathing thing, you know, because it is a, it is an organic thing. It's full of people that are, making lots of individual decisions all day long. And, and all of those decisions kind of roll up into very complex and adaptive systems. And so if we sort of see our organizations as a clock-like machine, we're probably not going to get them right. Uh, but if we, if we see them as, as sort of organic, dynamic, uh, human things, um, then, then we, uh, Will are the mental models that we create about them will be more accurate? Yeah, yeah. The biological model is is uh, a good guide, I think. And you mentioned complex adaptive systems. Mm -hmm. Let Let's just uh, set foot there for a, a second. I think we're comfortable with that. We've certainly talked about about VUCA, V U C A, as the, yeah. the standard condition. And that forces us to be adaptive, and, and those are some of the elements of a complex adaptive system. But just uh, go into a little bit more depth about 
these complex adaptive systems. Are all businesses complex adaptive systems? Are all business ecosystems complex adaptive systems? Are all people complex adaptive systems? Should we think of that as the norm? Absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of people, when they hear that your business is, you should take a complex adaptive systems approach, they say, oh yeah, that, you know, that's a good idea. I might adopt that. I might think of my business that way. And, um, and maybe, maybe my business is or isn't. It, the truth is you don't really get to choose whether your business is a complex adaptive system or what we call a CAS, C-A-S, or not. It, it is. And what you get to choose is whether or not you see it as in the way that it is, sort of like I was talking about earlier, being being in love with reality. The reality of your business is that it's a cast. And if you don't see it as a cast, then you're going to miss really, really important things about how your business or how your organization operates. Um, and so all, all organizations are casts. Uh, your brain is a cast. Thinking is a cast. Humans are casts. Um, so they're, they're very adaptive systems. Right. But I think what's important also about CAS in relation to business is if you recognize that your business is a CAS, that your organization is a CAS, it tells you that in order to bring about the kinds of change that you're trying to with your organization, that you need to focus on the at the local level, the agents inside the system, the people inside the system. And the things, the sort of simple rules that they're following behaviorally that are leading to the outcomes of your system. Most people actually think they can work on the outcome directly. But when you recognize that you're, you are actually dealing with a CAS, you know that you need to look underneath that and focus on the agents and the rules they're following and how those things over the collective set of behaviors are leading to the outcomes you're seeing. Yeah, we've, we've tried to talk a lot about emergent outcomes and accepting the fact that they they are emergent you can't control them but as you say you've got to focus at a at a lower mm -hmm. level so we're going to pull out one particularly useful application of of system think, thinking that comes from your book Laura and Derek flock not clock that you've you've mentioned you might uh, you might go a little bit more into that uh, simile if you like but the tool is VMCL which will learn stands for vision, mission, capacity, and learning. They're, they're four core functions for any organization. We're going to uh, work through them a little bit today. Um, so let, let's, let's talk about the flock, not clock metaphor, and then the definitions of VM and CL, and we'll, we'll walk through each one of them. Sure. Um, so I think as Derek was mentioning earlier, the flock, not clock, the name of the book stems from the sort of faulty metaphors that we've been using to describe organizations as being mechanistic and ordered and, and things that are mostly static. And we're trying to move people to a more biological, organic, um, adaptive way of thinking about um, systems and businesses, organizations, whatever word you choose. And VMCL, as you said, is vision, mission, capacity, and learning. We think of, um, you know, we, we call it an approach or a framework, but the, the truth of it is when you really study systems across the board, what you realize is VMCNL and some permutation are inherent natural functions inside of systems. In other words, most systems have a purpose or a goal state, what we would call vision. 
they have most most systems are characterized by uh, daily work or incremental, repeatable things that are happening in that system, which we would call mission. Most systems have a certain level of capacity to to do that daily work or their mission, and those are the systems we would say uh, allow you to get to doing your mission. And then, you know, also you can think of a a ton of examples of ways in which systems, whether they're, you know, organisms or organizations are learning. There's a learning function where they get feedback from the, you know, the external environment and they adjust to, to the feedback in order to survive. So that's why we say they're, you know, they're inherent in these kinds of organizations, vision, mission, capacity, and learning as functions. But you point out in the book that um, it's possible to have the wrong set of functions, the wrong, you say VMCL is natural, but we've been taught something unnatural. You summarize it as as plan, command, control, and utilize. So it's possible either to have the wrong wrong approach or the the wrong metaphor. How, How did that happen? Well, I think that comes down to, you know, one of the critical aspects of systems thinking is, is challenging our mental models. And when we frame a system a certain way with a mental model, that can lead to all kinds of confirmation bias. So plan, command, control, and utilize is kind of the traditional way we approach organizations. We, we shorten that by calling it PCCU, plan, command, control, and utilize. And when we think in terms of just planning and command and control structures and utilization of human resources and other things, um, I think we miss a lot about what the system is actually doing, what our organization is actually doing. Our organization, whether we like it or not, has a vision purpose function. Now, it might be the one that we aspirationally want it to have, or it might be the one that it's structured to have in and of itself. And so it's going to end up heading towards its goal either way. And so if, if we don't know that, then we can't sort of adjust to meet our organization uh, the way it is and where it's at. Same with the mission, same with the capacity, and same with the learning functions. Our organization will have those functions whether we like it or not. It's whether or not those functions of our organization are matching up to our aspirational idea of what those functions will be. So. Um, you know, when when yep. we when we get alignment between those, then then we can manage our organizations much better. Let's focus on vision. The term yeah. already exists in the business literature, but you say it's typically badly defined, misunderstood, misused, and can be potentially demotivating. Mm-hmm. Um, so explain that, and and what is the right way to think about vision? Yeah, I think that 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 part of the the frustration that people have when we talk about visions or missions is that we don't differentiate them enough. So visions are um, something we see. There's something that exists in the future, something we aspire to, whereas missions are something that we do. And when we do our mission over and over again, we can reach our vision. But often those two things are conflated or they're confused. They're thought of as synonyms when they're actually not. They're very different concepts. And for us, making that um, distinction between the two is is really critical to systems leadership and being, you know, leading your system in a way that is better in alignment with the reality of of how it works. I also think the 
the uh, traditional take on vision a lot of times gets conflated or confused with a tagline or yeah. a statement that goes on a website or a, a, that's put in a frame on a wall. And, you know, really a vision and a mission are things that live in the hearts and minds of the people of your organization as mental models. And so um, it's not really something that's externally facing per se. It's it's that everyone in the organization shares the same goal, the same future state for the for the organization, um, and that it's a, a measurable future state. And we, we provide a lot of the different things that a vision has to be in the book. But um, yeah. a lot of a lot of times you end up with these very vague and sort of big platitude yeah. statements for visions. And a vision is a very specific, this is the future that I see and this is where we're headed. Right. Yeah, you called uh, the bad the bad versions, you called them wood salad, which yes. <laughs> is very picturesque. Um, and as we always try and do, you've got some tools in the book that help you to uh, craft that, that crisp vision. And you have a little case history. I, I wonder if you can just mention that as an example, what, what uh, what the case history was and what the uh, example was? Yeah, so um, a lot of a lot of times what we talk about is with vision is is really think about something that is um, emotional and that gets you angry or pisses you off. Like the way things are today is something that upsets you, and then contrast that to how you think they should be in the future, and that contrast is where you'll find. The passion and the and the and the emotional connection to your vision, uh, and what that future state looks like. And the reason that's so critical is because the vision. I've always said the vision is like your alarm clock. Um, mm-hmm. I've always believed that you shouldn't really need an alarm clock if you have a good vision. It'll wake you up in the morning. And uh, and and the same is true for your employees. And we see this in the data on employee engagement and meaning and things like that. When you have a good vision. It gets people excited. It gets people emotionally connected to where you're going as an organization. And if you don't have that, then the why is kind of missing. Um, and uh, that causes people to be to decrease their engagement and things like that. So we just really start with this very simple idea of think about what pisses you off today. And how do you want that thing to be different uh, in the future? Yep. A quick note. Economics for Business is a uniquely Austrian platform to help entrepreneurs build value-generating businesses at every stage of the entrepreneurial journey. We've now launched online with an outstanding database of entrepreneurial knowledge, tools to solve specific business problems, and a community exchange to share information and experiences. Check it out at econforbusiness.com. That's E-C-O-N, the number four, business.com. Explore and let us know what works best for you in the feedback section. Now, back to our conversation. And the, the example that I picked out the book was about living healthy is the new normal. Yes. Is that, yeah. Yeah, is that yeah. a good example of a vision? Yeah, it's a great example. We actually had uh, the opportunity to meet with some of the execs at um, MyFitnessPal and, and do some work with them when they were about to have some massive growth and expansion. And what was fascinating to us, um, 
Derek and I, we did an offsite with them was the entire concept started from one of the founders of the company was, you know, frustrated that it was very difficult to find healthy foods and convenience stores to understand the nutritional value and caloric intakes from restaurant menus and all kinds of things. And as we started, you know, as we talked more and more with why, why he was starting this, uh, this app, my fitness pal, it came, it came to be very clear that it was just really out of the frustration that living healthy was difficult. And that's how they eventually over time wordsmithing came to living healthy is the new normal, like that, that it should be as it should be easy to be conscious of your nutrition and all of those things and to bring about the kinds of health outcomes that you want, um, that we were in, in many ways working against that. So that really upset him. And that's why he decided to do what he did. And you can see he's been a great success. Yeah. So that's a great example of a a vision. It's a seeing thing. I see that living healthy is the new normal, is the future state that I desire. And then what I really enjoyed in reading your book was that mission is clearly something different than that. It's a doing thing, not a seeing thing. That that really helped. So tell us about mission. Yeah, that's right. I, I think there's a, an immense amount of confusion around vision and mission, and um, and that's that's shown out in the uh, in the research. Uh, on this issue that a lot of people conflate the two. Vision is, is like you said, it's that seeing statement and uh, mission is a doing statement. Vision is also an emergent property of the mission. So the mission is something you do repeatedly over and over again to bring about the, the vision. Um, and, and so mission statements are sort of internal statements to guide the work of each member so that if they do that that thing repeatedly over time, it'll bring out bring about the mission, uh, the vision, and you can see that in the in the word itself. And when we think about missionaries, what do they do on a daily basis? They go out and they convert the unconverted, and then when they're done doing that, they do it again and they do it again and they do it again, and over time that creates a world, the vision, the emergent property of all these converted people. So mission is really repeated incremental doing and mission is, is what you see in the future. Um, very, very different. Yeah, but also really helpful. I, that's when I started to understand a little bit about the system. If you keep doing the mission every day, eventually the vision you see will, will come to pass. That, that was really helpful. And you said there are some rules for creating a successful mission. Let's, let's share some of those. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, as we, as Derek just said, missions are uh, actions that you do repeatedly. They bring about the vision. Uh, importantly, a good mission statement clearly explains who does what for whom. In other words, it actually directs the work of people at the ground level and they know what they're doing, each thing that they're doing for, and that they're working towards their vision. You know, it's also important that it's clear, it's concise, it's understood easily by people so that it can be communicated very effectively. Like, like um, vision, a mission is measurable. Uh, measuring a mission is, is fairly easy for people to understand. Then when you think of OKRs and all kinds of metrics we use to make sure we're accomplishing what we're doing. 
The other thing is mission, just like vision, is something that should live in the hearts and minds, meaning people should know it. They should live it. It should be part of sort of their the DNA of being part of your organization as they know what the mission is. And then there's also the the final thing that's unique to mission is that we have this thing called mission moments. And we consider those things to be sacrosanct, to be precious, to be something that we really work on carefully to make sure that we get more and more of them. Can you give us a couple of examples of mission moments? Yeah, sure. a, a mission moment is is really any time that um, that your organization is touching up against a customer, um, and so realizing, knowing when those things are occurring, and realizing just how um, just how critically important they are, and 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 that they're rare and precious moments in a, in in very many ways for your organization, and the best way that I can kind of explain this is, is if you just take an example of a, a mountain expedition, just to make the point, you can spend about 20 years developing the learning and expertise you need to climb a, a high altitude mountain. And that's the learning part of VMCL, the L. Um, to plan a single expedition might take between one and three years, right? And that's kind of the capacity building part. You, you you develop the the capacity to be able to go climb the mountain. Then you get to the to the mission part, which is climbing the actual mountain, and you spend a few weeks on the on a mountain. Um, and then mountaineers have a, a repeatable mantra for that mission, which is take one step, repeat. It's called the mountain rest step. So you just learn, and that's something that you even an oxygen deprived brain can can kind of remember. Just take another step, take another step. That's your mission mantra, right? And then you get to the summit and that's your vision. And you might spend three minutes on the summit before you go down. So think about those metrics. Think about those ratios because those are the same ratios that your business has. And that is, you know, you could, you, you know, let that sink in for a minute in many ways. Something you spent 20 years learning and three years building the capacity for, you execute in a three-week window culminating in maybe 10 minutes soaking in the victory. Um, those same ratios apply to your business. The energy and resources you spend on the most important things, which are vision and mission, are absolutely dwarfed by the organizational energy, time, and resources spent on capacity and learning. And so all the more reason that we have to focus great effort on making sure that the learning and capacity functions of our organization are laser focused on the mission and vision functions because the mission and vision are what we care about. But we don't actually spend a lot of time there. No company does. No, no company can. And so from a, one perspective, that mission moment, when you get a chance to, to do your mission, if, if everyone in the company doesn't see that as sort of a, a precious gemstone um, that you have to take care of, then you really are squandering some some of the most critical and most important moments in your company. Yes, yeah, since reading your book, I find myself asking myself, "Am I doing the mission? You know, or am I wasting time? Am I doing something I, that's not productive?" So that it's really focusing. Yeah. So you you mentioned capacity and and how crucial that is to being able to do the mission and eventually see the vision. And I, I found that part of the, the method uh, very distinctive 
Laura, it's, it's, I didn't think most companies approach capacity in the way that you, you propose. You know, do I have the capacity to do the mission? So tell us your way of thinking about capacity and, and how we build it. Sure. So if you think about um, so far, vision is a seeing statement and mission is a doing statement. We, we call capacity sort of a being statement, meaning at that moment, do you have everything you need in that moment to execute your mission? Are you ready to do your work, your, your capacity, the state of being, the state of readiness? Um, we also talk about that capacity, um, capacity should be a system of systems. They should all be connected that you don't have you know, a bunch of disconnected, disparate systems, that all of them should be connected in a way that's, that's singularly sort of focused and directed at the mission. And if you think about organizations when they do all kinds of things to downsize or to reorganize, a lot of the sort of diagnosis that they do in that process is looking for those systems that are actually not directed at their mission, that are not adding to their capacity or ability to execute that mission. Sometimes you'll find in organizations that you'll have, you know, more than one system that are sort of doing the same thing and you find redundancies in that system and you can, you can sort of lean, lean that out and, and, uh, and better focus all of your systems in a connected way towards your mission. You can think about also the example I think we had in the book, when you think about, you know, for most restaurants, their mission is pretty simple. They just have to get their supplies in and they can just call Cisco and have everything brought at once and it's a simple solution. But then you look at, you know, if you have somebody um, like Alice Waters, who was sort of create, you created this sort of farm to table movement and sort of pioneered California cuisine. Well, her mission was very different, right? Her mission was to create that different way of delivering um, a menu to her diners. Well, that meant that the capacitor systems that she needed to create to do her mission were very different, right? She had to, she had to make those important sourcing decisions and connections all the way from the distributors to what appears on your plate in that mission moment when a, when a, when a diner has served their meal. So capacity is really um, crucial in the sense that it, it's connected to, uh, on one way, making sure it's directed to your mission, but on the other way, it's connected to your learning, meaning that the learning should be increasing your capacity. So it sits in that Nice spot in the middle of VMCNL. Yeah, we we have a nice little image in uh, in our narrow world of Austrian economics, Laura. That Ludwig von Mises, in his uh, great tome *Human Action*, talks about the customer experience. That value is an experience. He uses a restaurant as a metaphor. And he said, you can't separate the role of the person sweeping the floor That's right. from the role of the chef who develops exactly. the, the food itself. It's all part of the experience that it, it's a system. He didn't use that terminology. But uh, often we, I know when, when I was in uh, organizational design, we thought in silos and functions and not in systems of systems. So um one of the ways you have in the book that helps people understand how to build systems of systems is what you call capacity mapping. And you've even got a software that, that helps people do that, Plectica. Um, but tell us about systems of systems and how you map them using software. 
Yeah. So, so like Laura said, I mean, it's uh, the, the key to doing your mission is really in the capacity to do it. And the key to capacity is really this difference between a bunch of systems and a system of systems, which is just systems that are operating together in, in a system. And so we use mapping, visual mapping, to map out the various systems, the different parts, how the parts are related, how the various systems are relate, interrelated with each other, and even zooming into each one of the relationships to reveal that those relationships are systems, much like you would look at uh, if you zoom into a supply chain, you see that a supply chain isn't just a relationship between the uh, producer and the end user. It's it's also as many, many different uh, parts that are part of that uh, linear supply chain. And so what we do is we kind of map those out and we call that a capacity map or a cap map. And we see how we ask ourselves in order to do the, the elements of this mission, which might be two or three or five elements uh, that you do repeatedly, in order to do those elements, what are the capacital systems that we need in place to be able to do those five elements or those three elements over and over and over again, efficiently, effectively, all that kind of stuff. And then we zoom into those different pieces and sort of uh, map how they work as a system to bring about the capacity to do that mission over and over and over again to bring about the vision. So can I replace my uh, functional org chart with a cap map, Derek? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and even functional org charts. I mean, you know, that hierarchical, mechanistic sort of way of thinking of things. An, an organization chart is really a, an influence network that uh, it, the hierarchy is, is far less important than the influencing dynamics of the relationships on the network. So, yeah, uh, last week we had uh, Diana Jones on the podcast, and she was talking about don't get fooled by your own formal organization chart. That's uh, right. What goes on is personal, private relationships between individuals who are sharing information and and doing That's right. things together that reminded me of the diagram you have in your book about the difference between the formal chart and the informal chart. Exactly the That's same right. thought. Yeah. 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 So um, capacity is measurable, right? It, it's whether I am getting my mission done, whether I'm doing the mission. So I can, I can measure whether my capacity is adequate, whether I've got enough, whether I've got the right capacity, right? Yeah. And you can measure, you can come up with individual metrics for the systems that are responsible for being able to do that mission and see how well they are facilitating doing the mission. And that's by looking at the purpose of that system and whether I'm, I'm achieving that purpose. That's right. Yeah. And it all meshes together. Yeah. So then it's, we've talked about VMCL and I've got to note that we don't do it in that order. As you say, the, the amount of time you devote to each one is, is, is not in that clear ratio, but let's cover learning. We, we try hard to think about adaptiveness here, uh, Derek and Laura. We try to think about feedback loops. We've, we uh, looked at the OODA loop, which is, um, you mentioned it in your, in your glossary. Um, but tell us about learning. I, learning expands capacity is one of the phrases you use. So maybe you think about learning a little bit differently than, than we do. Tell us about learning and how to learn. 
Well, I mean, I think uh, when you look at BMCL learning, you know, some some people would say learning is sort of the crux of it because learning is what moves into capacity, capacity to mission and mission up to vision. But, you know, when we think about learning, we think about it in, in several ways. I mean, the first and foremost is that, you know, any organization that wants to be adaptive and really um, adjust to the external environment around it has to love that just the concept of learning, you know, the concept of really seeking unvarnished feedback from the outside world to which they can respond and then try to really make the changes they need to make uh, to improve whatever they're trying to work on. You know, also for us, when we go and we work with groups, we do really try to make sure that it's clear that sometimes you have to really train people to understand that we're all dealing with reality through our mental models and that we all can improve our mental models by thinking more systemically about them, that we we really need to focus on how we're thinking about things, you know, the how of the thinking, not just what we're thinking about them and the mental models we're building about the situations that are presenting themselves to us. When you do that, you open up a new language where people can actually better understand one another because they're they're talking about what they're thinking about, how they're thinking about things and not just missing each other um, through the content of what they're talking about. And, you know, we talk a lot about the concept of having you know, in, in many ways, a CEO should be a CLO. They should be the chief learning officer. They should make sure that feedback is being gathered, that feedback is being um, distributed across the organization, responded to in the in the real time that it needs to be responded to. And that, you know, that there's not a fear of making mistakes and learning from those things. That becomes one of the cultural norms of the organization. And I think, you know, when you when you follow that through and you think about if you're doing all of those things, you're going to be able to constantly improve the systems that you have in place to to do your mission because you're you're operating in that real time reality and that fast feedback, you know, fail fast, fast feedback, all of those kinds of things. So I, I love, if possible, to go just a little bit more level of detail about that because I found it particularly challenging. You say you train people to think in order for them to be able to learn, which is, it's a, a, a deep thought. You've told us a little bit about training them to think, understand your own mental models, but I find that a little challenging. So do I have to understand which mental models I'm using? And then I think I got from the book, you, we have tons of mental models, so we've got to pick the ones that are most important. Then I've got to share them. I just go a little deeper into this mental models. Yeah, I'll I'll make one clarification. Then maybe Derek wants to be on this too. But if you think about, for example, when we talked about PCCU, those faulty mental models about plan, command, control, and utilize, and you think about the mechanistic metaphors for organizations and how that shapes how people inside that organization will think about things. One of the things when we say we train people to think in order to learn is there's actually a bunch of unlearning that has to happen, right? From the beginning, we have to unlearn some of the things that we have been taught to believe over time that have become almost normative in the way that we think about organizations and all kinds of other things. And I think one of the things that I think doesn't is is obvious but doesn't seem obvious to people is that a lot of people are not 
conscious of the fact that they are making mental models. When they're taking in information, they're organizing it in a way to create meaning. That's a mental model. If people are understanding that they're making mental models about things, then when you have a conversation with other people, it's about their mental model and the difference between yours and theirs is where you have a common ground to solve problems and think differently about things. So that's, I think, why we say things like you can use mental models to help us think, to better adapt to the situations and and things like that. But I'm sure Derek has another take on that too. Yeah. um, No, I think that's, that's right. The um, learning is, is sort of one of these things that like an organism or an organization that isn't learning is in the process of dying. Uh, Whether no matter what. And so learning is, is just absolutely essential. And I, this might seem a little squishy, but the, when I started off talking about the, a love of reality, organizational learning is fundamentally based on loving reality. Because if you don't want to hear that your customers don't like your product, if you don't want to hear things that are uncomfortable to hear, then you're not going to be open to learning. So if you have a mental model that your your shiny object product is so great, then you're not going to hear the real feedback. You're not going to hear what people really feel and really think about your product. And so learning is kind of open opening up to that that the the perception that I have is just a mental model. Let's get data from the outside world. Let's see what the outside world really has to say about about our product, our processes, our organization, et cetera. And, um, and let's be really into that. Now, a lot of companies think of organizational learning as we're going to get a, an LMS and we're going to train people in courses, right? And, and that's, that's not really, that's one, one very tiny aspect of, of organizations uh, is the courses that people take to learn new things. Really, organizational learning is, is the tentacles that the organization has out in the world that are bringing in information and how we're interpreting that information so that we can build capacity to do the mission to bring about the vision. Yeah, another term that you use in the book for loving reality is brutal honesty. Yeah. Eric, so yeah. Uh, is that the same thing? I've got to be brutally honest about what I'm seeing out there, the feedback that I'm getting? Yeah, I think so. We Mountaineers have a saying, which is uh, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. And and I think uh, I think you have to, that's what I mean by really loving realities. You, you really have to actually be curious. Like, I wonder, like this person just told me they love my product, but I wonder if there's a little part of them that didn't like something about my product. I'd love to know that part. You know, I'd love to, I'd, I love hearing that they loved my product, but I'd love to hear the part where they didn't love my products. You know, I, I'm really interested in hearing that. Um, and I want to know about that reality because it, it's probably there, you know. Yeah. That's a, it's a wonderful uh, insight, but probably a tough discipline to learn, do you think? It is. To, to love reality. But I'll tell you, as it, you know, if you want to survive and even thrive, I mean, nobody likes being lost and alone on the side of a mountain and freezing cold. But if you are not real about your situation, then you will not get out of that situation. So the, the best way to really 
uh, adapt and and change your immediate behaviors to get yourself out of situations or uh, not only to survive, but to thrive in situations is really to be dropped dead honest about what the situation entails so that you can um, choose the right path out of it or into it or whatever it is you're trying to do. So then there was, for me anyway, a twist at the end, which I was surprised by, which is um, we do all of this and we end up with a culture. So uh, if everyone has the same shared vision, if we're all working towards the mission and we know what to repeat and do every day, we, we build capacity where we love reality and we, we learn, we're a culture. And again, to use your word, culture has been thought of as a squishy idea, um, soft idea maybe, but it means many things to many people. But your concept's a pretty firm one, I think. If, if, if we're all right on the V and the M and the C and the L, we have a culture and the culture will take us forward. Yeah, at the end of the day, I, a lot of folks think of culture as being mysterious um, and amorphous, but it really isn't. Um, you know, culture is simply shared mental models. And so if you truly have a shared mental model around your vision, the where you're headed to, and you have a shared mental model around your mission, what everybody has to be doing every day in order to bring about that vision. And if you have a shared mental model around the various systems that are absolutely mission critical, and you have a shared mental model around the importance of learning and the things that you're learning and how that learning is going to translate into changes uh, in the systems that you develop, then that is at its core the shared mental model that brings about culture. And so culture is kind of an emergent property of these things. Uh, and and like like Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, and it and it really does. I mean, culture culture can culture is very adaptive, and it's one of the great emergent properties of organizations, and it's one of the least often uh, leveraged emergent properties of organizations. I think I think there's a misperception that culture just happens where we really focus on the fact that you can purposefully build a culture around the ideas of vision, mission, capacity, and learning. And one of the things we say when we're talking to different groups and working with different executive teams is, yeah, you can sit and you can read this, you can read about VMCL, you can read our book, you can love the whole approach. But the one thing you need to know is it's not going to implement itself. You have to purposefully build those shared mental models around your vision, your mission, your capacity, how you're going to be a learning organization. It's not just going to happen on its own. So you have to be very directed and remember that those four mental models are the most important. They're the crux of creating the kind of organization that you're, you're hoping to have. Yeah, they're, they're a system. And, yes, uh, they are. That leads me to maybe a, a kind of wrap-up question, but where do you think we are as a business community, as a nation, as an educational system um, in systems thinking? Uh, is, it, is it something that is uh, broadly disseminated now and we're learning to do it better, or is it something that we're only just beginning to see and it hasn't penetrated very far into business? Or how, how do you assess our current state and, and where we're going on systems thinking. 
Yeah, I, th- I think we're really just scratching the surface on um, on on the potential uh, and the organizational potential of systems and systems thinking. I think there was a we we've been very influenced by the systems thinking of the 1950s and the 1940s. Uh, and and things like feedback loops and you know stocks and flows and those kinds of things have have kind of permeated, but we really haven't come close to even understanding and utilizing the power of our new understanding of complexity and complex adaptive systems and how they work. And these are systems that that evolution and nature has been working on for millions and millions of years, and we can learn so much from them because uh, they really have figured out a lot of the things that we're trying to figure out, which is how do you get a bunch of disparate people to work together as if they're a single unified organism uh, towards some simple goal? Well, nature's already figured that out. Nature does it every day. And we can learn so much from nature uh, in terms of how we manage these systems. Good. Well, we hope uh, to learn from, from you both. We hope uh, you'll come back again and tell us more about systems thinking. I have a million more questions, but we're <laughs> we'd love to. We're starting to come up against time. Um, I I personally got a lot of uh, of learning from your book, Flock Not Clock. So we'll we'll link to that. You have another one called Systems Thinking Made Simple, and and we'll probably talk about that next time. Um, but there's a lot of, of Derek and Laura on the internet and LinkedIn and and other places. So where should we send our listeners to find out some more material besides your, your two books. CabreraResearch.org is probably the best place because then, then that'll link to all the other places. Um, or like you said, just doing a, a Google search on Cabrera Research uh, probably will find lots of things. Yep. And you should know that we, uh, we're entirely committed to getting these concepts out into the world and want to have a huge impact on it. So I would say 80% of the stuff that you see there is free and available and downloadable. And you can get started in understanding these things quite easily because we yeah. want you to. Good. That's no, wonderful. And we, we appreciate it very much. I've, I've done a lot of learning. And it, the word research in Cabrera Research Lab says suggests that you're doing ongoing research, you're doing projects, you're publishing papers. Is that right? And, and I find them on that site? Yes. Yes. We have a, a very long uh, hyperlinked bibliography there that you can download the papers. And um, we just finished 27 very successful uh, empirical studies that uh, we we're just publishing in the, in the last few weeks. So um, there's always new research coming out and we try to Really, fundamentally, what Cabrera Research Lab tries to do is not only push the envelope on the cutting edge sort of basic and and applied research, but then try to make that research accessible uh, in terms of public understanding of science and things like that. So we try to make it available, but also make it accessible. Good. Well, as we uh, launch our econforbusiness.com site, maybe there's a way we can put up the links and some of your material there and, and start a little systems think, thinking corner on uh, econ for business. That, that would be great. wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much. Well, thank, thank you. you. So Derek and Laura, this is, uh, this has been wonderful and we look forward to the next time, but we thank you so much 
not only for today, but for all the material you publish and the way you're trying to help everybody in business and everybody generally. It's, uh, it's wonderful. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Economics for Business is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit econforbusiness.com. And for more from Hunter Hastings, visit hunterhastings.com.